Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. After last week, the three of us all together, uh, I don't know if we can even do that again for a few weeks. I've just got Terry Fakes with me here today. We're missing Ben Williams. Uh, last week was a lot of fun talking about open theism. It was. Um, and I'm glad for the engagement we've gotten on that one. Uh, it's something that uh, if you read theology or even the blogosphere, the Christian blogosphere, uh, as funny as it is even to say that, you're going to encounter that. And I, I really, it was fun to get to di- dive into that. It's fun to been hear, hearing thoughts this week from listeners uh, emailing us. And I would just encourage everybody, if you have a question, if you disagree, if you uh, want to talk more, send us an email, info at soweespeak.com. And we'd love to talk more about it. Uh, I'm just, I, I'm thankful for the way that that's actually set us up. And we didn't plan it this way, but all of this ties together in the long run for the way that set us up to begin to talk about things like Old Testament prophecy. And we're going to talk about one of the minor prophets today, Obadiah. And this is kind of fun because it, Obadiah is one of those one pagers. It's, it's a book that's really easy to overlook, but you're really glad when you get it on your Bible reading plan because you feel so accomplished. You read an you entire, read an book, entire book. All 21 verses. Day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's an obscure book. It's difficult to understand. As we'll see, it's not one of the most relevant parts of Scripture on the surface. And I want us to talk about that for a minute, too, because... It, when people with a high view of Scripture, as we've talked about over and over again on this podcast, we, we do believe that every word of Scripture is meant to instruct us and teach us and train us, and right. every, every bit of it is the Word of God. That means that no part of it is actually more important than the others, but that doesn't mean that parts of it aren't more relevant during certain seasons exactly. of our life than others. Exactly. And so I want to tease that out a little bit in a book that seems pretty irrelevant Obadiah. So uh, let's get going here. When we say minor prophet, what do we mean? Well, that's a great question. That's obviously not a comment on Obadiah's importance or God's inspiration of this. But the Old Testament, as we organize it, as Christians organize it, is organized in the prophetic section of four major prophets. In other words, the four longer books uh, of the Bible. Of course, there were many prophets, by the way. I'm assuming our listeners know this, is there were a lot of prophets. Not all of them wrote things down. And there are references in the Bible to other prophets, but they didn't mm-hmm. all write things down. So you have the four major prophets, large books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. That's not exactly the way the Jewish uh, Old Testament is organized. All those books are there, but they're not organized that way. But Christians see those as four great large prophets. And then there are these 12 prophets that are lesser known that spoke perhaps in more immediate circumstances. And so Mm -hmm. your Protestant Old Testament, our Christian Old Testament is divided at the very end with four major prophets and these four what are called lesser or minor prophets. Yeah, one of my favorite things that you've done is the the blog series that you did a while back called Tales of, of the Nevi'im. And it was an overview of the 12 minor prophets. And, and there's some really interesting stuff surrounding these prophets. You have the Book of the Twelve is what this is, is referred uh-huh. to a lot of times. The Twelve being the 12 minor prophets. Uh, Nevi'im would be the, the Hebrew word for prophet in the plural prophets. Uh, when we get to a book like Obadiah, the fact that he's a minor prophet doesn't mean that he is a JV prophet. He, he <laughs> just didn't, didn't graduate as high in his class at prophet school as Isaiah did. Uh-huh. Now, 
there is something to say for the literary quality of the major prophets. A lot of times, yeah. if you look at a prophet like Obadiah or Amos or Nahum or somebody, and you look at the poetry of Isaiah, there is a pretty big difference in the way that the two of them write and in the magisterial nature of the book of Isaiah. But these prophets actually, Obadiah, uh, when we think of, of some of the ones that are attached to the royal family mm-hmm. later on, we, obviously when we think of the book of Malachi as the capstone of the, of the Old Testament, the last word, they were no less important than the major prophets. So no. can I add one thing there? And I, this may just be uh, a little bit of a Sunday school answer, if you will. But when I read this, I think to myself that... God, the Holy Spirit used all of these prophets. Let's say Isaiah, the first of the major prophets, and Obadiah, one of the you know shortest book in the Old Testament, right? And he used them both. And when I think about that, I think to myself, Terry, you don't need to be Isaiah. That's up to God. If he wants you mm-hmm. to be uh, an Obadiah <laughs> and he wants 21 verses out of you and that's it, that's fine. And so mm-hmm. I think you're right. There's honor to be had in their faithfulness to God, regardless of, of their status in our Bible. Yeah, that's a great point. The frustrating thing about the minor prophets is, unlike Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, we usually don't have any information about these guys. We right. don't know anything about them other than their name. Sometimes, and we'll talk about this as we get as we get later on, sometimes we know what their occupation was. Uh-huh. Occasionally we know something about their lineage Obadiah is kind of the textbook case. We actually know nothing about this person. We only know what's listed in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. (laughs) Now, the people who were around may have known who he was, or they may not have. That's the beautiful thing about this. The Old Testament prophets sometimes were not well known, and that was kind of what God was doing through them. The only historical stuff that we have on this is is a sketch of when this probably was written and this is another great introduction to what you do when you study the minor prophets is you look for all kinds of clues to tell you what's going on in the contemporary scene around the time that these prophets are are prophesying in this one we get two clues basically the first one is in verse 11. He describes a scene in the past on the day that you stood aloof, on the day the strangers carried off his, his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. That's likely, in fact, almost, almost surely a reference to the fall of Jerusalem in 586. Yes. And then secondly, we get a foretelling of the destruction of this group of people who you're going to intro in in a minute for us, Mm -hmm. uh, the Edomites, which we know happened in 553. So this book is written somewhere in the 30-some-odd years between 586 and 553. Other than that, we literally know nothing about the background of this book. That's right. That's I mean, that's good detective work, Cole. And, and a lot of times, some of the thrill of reading the Bible is, is a little detective work, if you will, kind of putting mm-hmm. the clues together. Well, I think one of the key things before we jump into this book that you have to understand is some history that goes back way before this. So I'll make this pretty brief because I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with the biblical story. But this is happening around, say, 586 B.C. Let's go all the way back to the time of... Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and this is in the 1800 B.C. I mean, it's way, way before this. 
So Isaac and Rebecca had twin sons, Jacob and Esau, and you probably know that story. And uh, the story of Esau being the elder, but Jacob getting the birthright, etc. And there's there was hostility between the two. So Jacob is going to be mentioned in this book, and Esau is also going to be mentioned, but Esau had another name. He was also called Edom. So Jacob and Edom were literal brothers around 1800 BC, and from them came great nations. So Jacob basically had uh, 12 sons, became the 12 tribes of Israel, and are called Israel. That's not just a land, a place where they live, but they're also called after their forefather, Jacob, who also was called Israel. So the land of Israel, the people of Israel, sometimes, and Obadiah is going to do this, just says Jacob. When he says Jacob, what he means is the people that are alive in 586 B.C., but they basically are descended from Jacob. So he's talking about the land and the person. And that's just a very Middle Eastern way of thinking, is that you as a people are known by your great ancestor. So when Obadiah says Jacob, he's talking about not the guy who lived necessarily back in 1800 BC. He's talking about his descendants, the Israelites. The same with Edom. Edom, his descendants, settled south of Israel, down by the Dead Sea. And when you look on maps of the Old Testament, you'll see a nation down there called Edom. So when he refers to Edom, he's not talking about that ancestor, again, from 1800 B.C. He's talking about their descendants and the place where they live. So just a little simple primer there that when you hear Obadiah talking about Jacob and Edom, he's transferring that brotherly relationship to the two nations of his time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful background. Um, we see the story of Jacob and Esau, and, and most people know parts of that story, the the uh, the enmity that, that arose between those two, partially because of the way that Jacob tricks Esau. And while the two brothers in Genesis, they reconcile the people, their people groups actually never really do reconcile. And so in the beginning of this book, we see that uh, the nation of Edom has done something that God is angry about. And when, when we enter into this story, we, we realize that uh, it's not good to be the Edomites. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and you talked about the history. They do have a long history. Uh, obviously, Jacob and Edom, Esau, his brother, had conflict. Then a few hundred years later, you remember the story of the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, being slaves in Egypt, and Moses comes and leads them into the Promised Land. Well, when the Israelites and Moses got to the edge of the land of Edom, the Edomites said, you guys are descended from Jacob. We're cousins, but you know what? We hate you guys. You cannot cross mm-hmm. our land. And so they had to go all the way around. And so that enmity between the two went down even to the time of Obadiah. So as you mentioned, when the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem, of course, many of the Israelites fled. Many of them fled uh, wherever they could go, but they certainly fled south away from Babylon and into the land of Edom. And according to tradition, the Edomites blocked the crossroads and either killed the Israelites who were fleeing 
or mm. captured them and turned them over to the Babylonians. And so you see this history of, of really bad blood between the two nations. And I think that's what Obadiah is addressing is that latter instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is where it's really interesting to, to dive into the stories and, and put these prophetic words in context, both politically, relationally, here genealogically, it is really important to get to get the sense that uh, you know Obadiah wasn't just saying things from God generally. He was actually speaking into a real live political historical situation in the same way that we would speak into it today. That's a great and in point. fact you can you can go to the city of Petra, mm-hmm. which was in the territory of Edom and it's this it, how how would you describe it? I would say it's probably one of the most guarded uh, fortified cities in the ancient world. Oh, it really is. Edom was right up next to a mountain range, and they felt like they were pretty impenetrable to uh, attack because they could always retreat up into their mountains. And Petra's one of the places that the, the buildings and the areas literally carved into the face of the mountain. And mm-hmm. so it does give you an idea of why they were so proud, why they were so haughty, and uh, why they thought that they were indestructible, if you will. Yeah, most people have probably seen a picture of the gates to Petra. It's just this this facade carved right into the rock with a single door. Mm-hmm. And I just mentioned that if you look at verse 3 of Obadiah, it says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, yes. in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle... Though the nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Yes. That's something that everyone would have known what that was referring to in right. the time that this was written. And in fact, we actually see that happen later in history. And uh, now, with, with the benefit of hindsight, we understand what God was saying. But this is the word that Obadiah was bringing to them. So if, if we have that background... Uh, the, the Edomites, they sold out Israel. They refused to take them in. They gloated at their misfortune. They contributed to their misfortune. They looted. They sided with the enemies. And now God is speaking through Obadiah to say uh, judgment is coming for the people of Eden. The, the ESV Study Bible has a great summary of this book. It, it, it puts it this way. The Jerusalemites experienced God's judgment when enemies invaded and cast lots for Jerusalem. The Edomites, the descendants of, of Jacob's brother Esau and one of Israel's neighbors to the southeast, should have assisted their brothers during the Babylonian crisis. Instead, they sided with the foreign invaders and even took advantage of Israel's misfortune. Yes. The book is roughly organized according to that summary. Mm-hmm. The announcement of judgment takes place from verses 1 through 15, the majority of the book. 75% of the book is, is devoted to a judgment, an oracle of judgment directed at Edom. And then the last few verses, 16 through 21, are a promise of what's going to happen after the day of the Lord. So after the judgment comes for Edom, there actually is going to be hope and promise for Israel in the same moment. And we're going to touch on this later, 
perhaps when we get to the book of Amos, it would be the best time to talk about it. But I think we should stop now just for a moment and say, what do we mean when we say the day of the Lord? It's mentioned here. It's described here. We're going to see it over and over and over again in the prophetic literature. Um, what, what should we be thinking when we read that? Well, that's a great question. The day of the Lord has, has a number of uh, nuances to it, but in its most basic sense, it's the day that the Lord comes to give an accounting. Uh, you'll hear a lot of phrases uh, in the New Testament time that the day when God will set things right, when the day will, when God will take the oppressed and bring them and wipe their tears and God will punish the oppressors. But it's really a day of reckoning, if you will, that where mm-hmm. everyone will stand before God. Uh, for example, in verse uh, 15, you see, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. I think you've said it to me before. You said this is where God sorts out all of his people. Mm-hmm. And we get this sense in, in the day of the Lord, you see it described as what we would think is the end of the world. The, mm-hmm. the cosmic events of it, the moon turns to blood, the sun goes dark, the earth shakes. We see descriptions of it in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But in essence, what's happening is God is coming to judge. He's coming to, as you said, sort out the world where the evil people are going to be punished and the good people are going to be rewarded. And of course, with the whole Bible in context, we understand that there are no good people. There are only people who are God's people who've put their trust in his promises and, and in Christ. And then there's everybody else who's rebelled against the Lord. Yeah. And, you know, when we get to the book of Matthew, you and I were talking about this. When we talk about that on the on a podcast for Matthew, you'll see in Matthew 25 where Jesus teaches this idea of sorting out the sheep and the goats and God. It's a judgment uh, story as well as God is going to mm-hmm. set things right. He's going to take the the evildoers, etc. You see the same thing in Jesus' teaching that you're hearing here in Obadiah. Right. Yeah. We we typically pick up on this in the Old Testament, and then we glaze over a little bit in the New Testament. <laughs> but it's the same message either place. God is going to set the world right. And and that comes with promises of judgment and promises of blessing. See, we see in the end of this book, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, this is, he's referring to the Edomites celebrating the demise of Israel. So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and they shall be as though they had never been. Yeah. Uh, that's a judgment promise. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. And then the house of Esau shall be stubble, and they'll be burned up by them. You know, the the final promise that we get in this book in verse 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem, to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Yes. One of the big themes that we get in this book is that God is the God overall, not just over Israel. Mm-hmm. And it's easy sometimes when we read the Old Testament to slip into thinking God only really cares about the Israelites. Right. For better or for worse. He mm-hmm. cares about them blessing them against their enemies. He cares about them when they sin. But to read the Old Testament is to, un- to understand that the promise for Israel t- through Abraham is that Israel would bless the nations. And while we get the perspective in the Bible of the nation of Israel, 
God's plan for all along is to bless all the nations of the earth. And that means, in one sense, he has a vision bigger than just the obedience of Israel. But then secondly, that the nations of the world are not off the hook for not knowing him. It's, it's not as though Israel and everybody else are held to different standards. Now, Israel obviously has the law and uh, they have promises and things like that that, that that are significant and are unique. But we don't believe that the rest of the nations are just given a pass for not worshiping God. In right. fact, we see here that judgment is going to come, even though the Edomites are related to Israel, uh, they, they're not the people that received the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, when Israel was receiving the law, that's when the Edomites were trying to do away with Israel. Right. And uh, they're not going to get a pass for that, though. And so we get this sense of the cosmic plan of God. We see this with the Babylonians later that God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of mm-hmm. his will, and then he's going to punish them for rebelling against him. He's going to punish the Amalekites. He's going to punish the Canaanites because they have sinned and they've forsaken God and they should know him. So that'd be the first thing I would point out. What, what, what's a theme that sticks out to you here? You know, one of the themes is related to that is uh, the idea of are we our brother's keeper? is something Mm -hmm. that jumps out at me here on several levels. I mean, that phrase comes all the way back from Genesis when Cain and Abel are before God and God approves of Abel's offering and not of Cain's and Cain becomes angry and he kills his brother. And God comes and speaks to Cain and he said, where is your brother Abel? And Cain says, how do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what have you done? His blood cries out to me, answering meaning, why, yes, as a matter of fact, you are. We are responsible for each other in some way. And here you see this idea of brotherhood back in verse 10. He's saying to Edom, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, which they did. This is sort of an Abel and Cain situation. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. This is the story of Cain and Abel redone. And there's a sense in which, even though they have conflict between Edom and Israel or Jacob, there's a sense in which we are indeed our brother's keeper. I know, Mm -hmm. uh, again, I talked to you about Matthew, but there's a great passage in Matthew that we quote a lot, and it's where Jesus says, uh, you know, to those who are approved by God, that God has said, come into your rest and be blessed. And then uh, they said, well, wow. And he said, when I was hungry, you fed me, etc." And they said, when did we do that? And Jesus says, when you did that for the least of these, you did it for me. It carries a little bit on the theme of you, we are our brother's keeper. And because we are God's people, we do those things. And I, I just see that idea here that even our enemies, and this is really applicable to us as Christians today, because I don't know about you, but when I read this book, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm Jacob, and boy, those mean Edomites out there. I've got a lot of Edomites in my life that I wish God would, you know, smite or do something to. But I need to be very careful that I don't become an Edomite, meaning my enemies, uh, I don't gloat over their disaster. I, I, you know, in other words, I'm, I don't think I have to be my brother's keeper because these are my enemies. That's a good point, and it highlights one of the things that's tough in the prophetic literature is 
there's the struggle between historic importance. So the book of Obadiah, for example, is making a concrete historical prophecy that does come true, speaking into a contemporary situation, making references that people would have understood, making a prophecy that could be tested and fulfilled in 553 and the years after that. But this book was also preserved for us in the Bible. And so we do believe that every word of Scripture is meant to teach us. So then we wrestle with, well, what is this what is this prophecy that was given in a specific time to a specific set of people over a specific conflict? What does it have to teach us now? And that's wrestling we have to do. On the one hand, we can't mm-hmm. just take the promises made to other people and make them our own. Right. You know, we can't just read the Old Testament and, and just cherry pick anything we want, apply it to our lives, uh, apply, apply it blindly to any situation we find ourselves in. That, that's not a good way to read Scripture. But on the other hand, just saying, wow, this is really an interesting historical look at the relationship between these two people groups, that's also not a great way to read Scripture. Right. And so we have to wrestle, we have to struggle between those two senses that we have about how to uh, hit hit a little bit of the easy button on interpreting this. Mm-hmm. I would say the lesson that you pointed out of, of being a brother's keeper is relevant today. I would say that the lesson of not standing in the way of what God is doing and the people of God is yeah. relevant today. In mm-hmm. fact, I think you see you see some parallels between what happened in the book of Obadiah and what happens in the book of Acts. So in Acts, for example, you have the theme of Acts is Acts 1-8. The gospel is going to go forth in power to all these areas, starting in Jerusalem, going to the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. And you see that in Acts, whether it's Ananias and Sapphira or uh, whether it's Simon Magus or whoever, if you stand in the way of the Lord, you're going to be punished. (laughs) Or in their cases, you're going to be eliminated from from the path. that's still, it may not be as radical today. We obviously don't see stories like Ananias and Sapphira, and we don't want to see stories like Ananias and Sapphira today. But we do see that there is something to be said for, are you with the people of God, or are you against the people of God? And we always want to be with the people of God. We want to be encouraging. We want to be supportive. We want to be helpful. We don't want to get to the point where we are so concerned with our own agenda our own points, our own way of doing things that we actually end up selling out our brothers and sisters. Um, And and two contemporary examples I wanted to make of this is it's become really popular in the Christian, pseudo-Christian world, at least the fringes of the Christian evangelical world, to make a career out of essentially making fun of and tearing down the church. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of things that, that... deserve to be made fun of about the church. I mean, we've done some really dumb things. But I am saying that there are bloggers and authors and podcasters who have spent most of their time criticizing, talking about how terrible the church is, and yet they're marketing themselves to evangelical Christians. And that's just something I've never been comfortable with. It's not something that I've ever thought was God honoring. In fact, I, I would say that those people, in some sense, they may be believers, they may not, but uh, in some sense, they're modern day Edomites. They're well, selling out their brothers for a little bit of short term 
fame or a little bit of short-term popularity. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, while it's really strong to say they're kind of in the position of the Edomites, uh, uh, you, you raise a good point in that God expects us to be brothers. The bigger point to me on that, and I'm just going to say amen to it, is if if somebody came up to me and started criticizing my wife to me, she might be wrong. In other words, my wife doesn't do everything right, but I don't appreciate that. And Mm -hmm. particularly when a husband comes to me and starts criticizing his wife, and I'll say, wait a minute, this is your bride. I think for Christians to criticize the bride of Christ is an unbelievably arrogant thing to do. Do we really think Christ is pleased by throwing his bride under the bus? I'm with you on that. I think that's a, that's a, I, I may have too much fear of the Lord to participate in that. Right. And that's not to say that there aren't places where we step up and say, hey, this is not what the Bible teaches. Sure. Uh, and it's not to say that there aren't intramural disputes that we have in the church that can be God honoring. But it is to say that uh, selling out the people of God is never a good strategy uh, and is not God honoring. Now, I want to, as, as we close here, though, I want to flip that around and say there are also places where we're tempted to gloat or uh, to celebrate people who do things differently than we do when they fail, uh, even though we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, it's tempting for us to look at people who do things differently, to look at, at people who are, are gospel-believing people who we think are primitive or dumb or selling out or whatever angle we're coming in at on this. But essentially, they just have different preferences than we do. And when we see people like that fail, oftentimes it's easy for us to think, well, you know, if they were doing it the way that we were doing it, or uh, if they were as smart as we are, or as progressive as we are, whatever your your thing is, it's easy to sit there and say that. And uh, I think in that way, we become Edomites. Well, there's something I'd like to uh, bring out on that, because I think you're making a really good point here with this inside the church and, and how we deal with each other. I mean, there's certainly the truth that as we as believers— that there are certain things we have to believe. In other words, there are people that are outside the tent, if you will, that do not believe some essentials. But let me just focus on those of us, all these different denominations, for example, and we all believe the essential things, but we may disagree on some of the uh, uh, disputable matters, if you will. And it's really easy when that happens for me to say to you, you know what, you're wrong. And the thing, and you may say the same thing to me, is you're wrong about infant baptism or you're wrong about the end times. The thing is, you can be wrong and not be evil. So on any given dispute, one of us is probably is wrong, but it doesn't mean that either of us are evil. And I think when we jump to the conclusion that you don't agree with me, and even though we agree on the, the essentials of Christianity, that but you must be bad, you must be evil. I think that's what tempts us to treat each other in non-brotherly ways, and I think it's a threat to our unity. I agree with that, and, and in our culture, it's getting harder and harder to disagree with someone and continue to love that person, continue to respect that person, and just honestly disagree. And the thing about the New Testament teaching is everywhere in the New Testament that we're given instructions for how to treat other people, whether it's people inside the church where we're given the instruction to outdo each other in showing honor, 
Uh, or if it's outside the church where we're called to pray for our enemies and to love our enemies and and to seek uh, to share the gospel with people and to serve and do all that, never once are we given the command to gloat over the failure of other people. And and, and I know somebody probably will come back and say, well, what about what about the imprecatory psalms and right. And what about the enemies of God? And, you know, we, we, we just spent time talking about judgment. But the thing that you always have to remember about with judgment is who's the one that's going to be doing the, the judging? And I'm talking about the final judgment here. Uh, God. God is going to be the one that's doing that. Right. He, when it comes to vindicating the name of God, it's, it's never human beings that do it. It's always God that does it. So when it comes to things like revenge and when it comes to uh, God bringing the world to right in the end— it's not us that get to do that. It's him. And we're, we're, we're told all over the New Testament that uh, God is the avenger. And so for us, we pray and we, we heat burning coals, but we don't actually do the avenging. I agree. And I, I think it, it helps us to bring a little humility to uh, any situation, knowing that we should speak truth. We should lovingly speak truth. We should try to correct uh, error. We should certainly lift our brothers up when they've stumbled but in the end, we will both stand before God, and he will be the final arbiter. Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of the wrestling we have to do in this is always, what can we learn from a specific word to a specific people, and how is it relevant? How is it instructing us today? And so whether it's the book of Obadiah or any Old Testament prophet, for that matter, Old Testament history, I would say we're asking questions like, what does this tell us about the character of God even in this particular circumstance? What does this teach us about the nature of man? What does this teach us that we can expect from God and and how we should behave given the way the world actually is, the way that the Bible tells us the world actually is? And so we read a passage like this about Edom and Jacob in in the book of Obadiah, and we have lessons that are eternal, Uh, not just specific to that time period about a specific instance, but uh, we as the people of God are still called to trust God's promises for the future. We, we are still called not to sell out our brothers in, in Christ. And um, in the end, we are called to believe that God will put the world to right and the people of God will be blessed and the enemies of God uh, will be vanquished. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.